You're listening to Vatican Radio. In this week's edition of Gospel Truth, the late Jill Bevilacqua and Sean Patrick Lovett bring us readings and reflections from the Gospel of St. Mark, chapter 1, verses 12 to 15, for the first Sunday of Lent. The Spirit sent Jesus out toward the desert. He stayed in the wasteland forty days, put to the test there by Satan. He was with the wild beasts, and angels waited on him. After John's arrest, Jesus appeared in Galilee, proclaiming God's good news. This is the time of fulfillment. The reign of God is at hand. Reform your lives and believe in the good news. Like many sayings which have become part of our language, though we have no idea where they come from, there's one which has a real connection with this gospel. Oh, I'll do it sometime, we might say, when the spirit moves me. But we're not talking about spiritual matters, only about some prosaic job we have to do and probably keep putting off. But the phrase, in fact, does have a religious origin. It was first used by the Quakers and definitely referred to the Holy Spirit though today it's usually intended to mean when a person feels inclined to do something. And in fact, George Fox, the founder of the Quakers, or Society of Friends as they're known, wrote in his journal of the Revelation in which he said, The Father of Life drew me to his Son by his Spirit. The Gospels of Matthew and Luke have Jesus being led by the Spirit into the desert, while Mark uses a stronger verb, Here we have sent, and in another version, driven. A Cistercian monk, writing on the spirituality of the desert, reminds us that it was immediately after his baptism by John that Jesus was sent to the desert. No sooner had Jesus come out of the water after his baptism than he saw the heavens torn apart and the Spirit, like a dove, descending on him. And when the Father's voice rang out, Immediately afterwards, the Spirit drove him into the wilderness. Note the connection which the text seems to establish between the fullness of the Spirit resting on Jesus and his withdrawal into the wilderness. The writer doesn't suggest that our Lord was in any way forced to go into the desert against his will, and he explains... The word pronounced by the Father was a word of love. You are my beloved Son. My favour rests on you. The Spirit given was the Spirit of love. Christ's withdrawal into the wilderness was a loving response to this word, this gift of love. The Son of God had no need to prepare for the apostolate, but his human nature, most particularly at this overwhelming moment, aspired to be alone with his Father. And so he goes willingly, even if paradoxically forced or led by the Spirit, out into the wilds, far from his dear ones, far from the people on the banks of Jordan, somewhere where there was no one but his father and him. An hour or two's walk would have taken Jesus to what's traditionally known as the Mount of Temptation, or Mount Quarantal, symbolising the forty days he's said to have spent in the desert. If he climbed to the top, about 1,600 feet up, he'd have had what the guidebook calls a breathtaking view of the Jericho Valley, the Dead Sea, the mountains of Moab and Gilead, the northern Judean desert, 
and the Jerusalem mountains. Though no tourist, one might imagine that Jesus, in his humanity, would nevertheless have appreciated the splendour of the scene spread out before him. At that time, we read, there was a fortress on the summit. One of a chain of seven fortresses overlooking the Jordan Valley and guarding the eastern flank of the mountains of Judah and Samaria. Despite its superb location and the steep slopes and valley which surround it and give it natural protection, the fortress was conquered by the Romans in 68 AD. In the 4th century, a Byzantine monastery was built on the ruins of the fortress as a centre for the monks who lived in caves on the slopes of the mountain. It was destroyed around the 7th century and was never rebuilt. But at the end of the 19th century, a Greek Orthodox monastery was built halfway up the mountain and this can still be seen and visited. It is built against the almost sheer cliff and seems to be growing out of the mountain. In the monastery is a stone on which, according to tradition, Jesus sat during his temptation. Thus the guide, which also tells us that in the Byzantine period, that is between the 4th and 7th centuries, hermits lived there. They did not build a monastery but lived on the side of the hill in two rows of caves, which they turned into cells, chapels, storage rooms and water reservoirs. A sophisticated system of conduits brought the rainwater of a large catchment area into five caves used as reservoirs. The monks were scattered after the Arab conquest in the 7th century, and apart from a brief attempt by the Crusaders to restore the place, it was deserted for hundreds of years. 19th century travellers reported that some of the caves were inhabited by Ethiopian monks, but nowadays only a handful of monks live in the large monastery. Where Jesus lived in the 40 days of his retreat, we don't know. Was it in one of the caves? We can only say maybe. And what was the rhythm of his days there? Our Cistercian monk puts the same question and offers his answer. What did Jesus do in solitude? Not preaching, not eating, not drinking, possibly not sleeping. He contemplated. His whole soul was before God all his powers deployed in contemplation, freed from every other sort of activity. The beatific light bathed his mind. His will burned with heavenly charity. The gifts of the Holy Spirit bore all their fruits in him. Disengaged from all earthly occupations, Jesus could give his prayer a scope never to be exceeded again during his ministry. As if to avoid repeating the same word, our Gospel today uses desert in the first line and wasteland in the second. And both words are extremely powerful in the images they call up. Desert we've considered often when reflecting on the time John the Baptist spent there. But there are always new images to discover and different people see it differently. Elizabeth Hamilton, in her study of Charles de Foucault, The Desert My Dwelling Pace, Writes. The desert evokes the continuity of history. Rock paintings, tombs, carefully constructed water courses, abandoned fortresses, forgotten monuments. These bear witness to a time when a world that is now empty and silent was populated. The writer was referring to the Sahara, 
but what with the watercourses and fortresses, she might just as well have been talking of our mountain of temptation in Palestine. Charles de Foucault himself wrote in a letter to a friend of the hermitage he had built in 1911 at Azekrem, in a region called the Kudia, or fortress, in the heart of the mountains, at an altitude of 7,800 feet. From his window, we read, he saw the sun rising, and he only had to walk 500 yards to see it set. Shades of the Little Prince. This two-room dwelling de Foucault called his country house. I am entirely alone on the mountain that dominates the country. The view is wonderful. You can see the whole Hagar range, extending north and south to immense desert plains. Peaks, piles of rocks, tall, needle-like formations make the most fantastic shapes. The solitude is a delight. I love it. Close by are many ravines where, when it rains, the ground is covered with sweet-scented grass. The Tuareg come in haste to pitch their tents and benefit from the fresh mountain water. And it was to the service of the Tuareg that de Foucault devoted his life. Perhaps we should not be surprised to learn that the man who wrote The Wasteland should have evoked the life of de Foucault in one of his plays. These lines by T.S. Eliot appear in The Family Reunion. The worship in the desert, the thirst and deprivation, a stony sanctuary and a primitive altar, the heat of the sun and the icy vigil, a care over lives of humble people. The wasteland of Eliot's poem, which was published in 1922, was the world as he saw it after the First World War. But the waste, we read, was not that of war's devastation and bloodshed, but the emotional and spiritual sterility of Western man. And the poet was not only writing of his own century. And Eliot's theme is a positive one, the possible salvation of the wasteland, which leads us naturally to Isaiah. Let the wilderness and the dry lands exult. Let the wasteland rejoice and bloom. Let it bring forth flowers like the jonquil. Let it rejoice and sing for joy. For water gushes in the desert, streams in the wasteland. The scorched earth becomes a lake. The parched land springs of water. And as a present-day biblical scholar comments, Isaiah is describing the salvation of the people with images taken from the natural and vegetable world. The starting point is the aridity of the desert, the wasteland which is transformed by God. The jonquil, though some prefer to translate it as lily, is the image of splendour and beauty from the Song of Songs. For Jonquil we may read Daffodil, or Lent Lily, as it was sometimes called. So why not listen now to The Lent Lily by A. E. Hausman. Tis spring, come out to ramble the hilly brakes around, for under thorn and bramble, about the hollow ground, the primroses are found. And there's the windflower chilly, with all the wind at play, 
And there's the Lenten lily that has not long to stay and dies on Easter Day. And since still girls go maying, you find the primrose still and find the windflower playing with every wind at will, but not the daffodil. Bring baskets now and sally upon the spring's array and bear from hill and valley the daffodil away that dies on Easter Day. Even if there were no daffodils on the Mount of Temptation, or indeed anywhere in that arid region, was there not perhaps another flower, very tall, from four to six feet, with soft hairy leaves? Flannel flower, blanket leaf, even bunny ears, they called it. And as people used to dip the tall stems in pitch and use them as candles, it was also called the candlewick plant. But by far the most popular name has always been Aaron's Rod. For by God's command, Moses told the leaders of the twelve tribes of Israel to bring each of them a branch to the tent of testimony. The man whose branch sprouted would be the one God had chosen. And the next day Moses came, and there we read in the book of Numbers was Aaron's branch, there already sprouting. Buds had opened, flowers had blossomed, and almonds had already ripened. You won't find almonds today on Aaron's rod, but in a children's wildflower alphabet, we may read the flower's own thoughts on the matter. I am a tall and golden wasteland flower, but in Moses' day I had my hour. In fact, it's odd to think that God used common me to help select Aaron for his priest-elect. In the Gospels, no flowers are mentioned as being present in the wasteland. And indeed, in one of the many definitions of wasteland, I found that apart from being a piece of land not cultivated or used for any purpose, it added, and producing little or no herbage or wood. My favourite definition is land in its natural, uncultivated state. And the image which the word brings to my mind immediately is of those stretches of open land invariably covered in summer with the large rosy purple wildflower known as Rose Bay Willow Herb. There are many negative images and definitions, of course, a wild and desolate region, frozen wastes, but I rather like this figurative one from Dickens. Who was it who was gazing at a dreary waste of cold potatoes looking as eatable as Stonehenge? But returning to our Gospel, the line, he was with the wild beasts and angels waited on him, is a reference to Eden, suggests our biblical scholar. Jesus lived in harmony with wild animals, as Adam, in the earthly paradise before the fall, lived in harmony with God and all creation. Did the wolf live with the lamb, the panther lie down with the kid, the calf and lion cub feed together? Surely they did. But in this desert, the chief resident seems to have been the tempter. But he's put to flight, and then angels ministered to him. Ministering angels, a phrase that somehow calls up a picture of nurses bending over wounded soldiers, probably due to the much-quoted line from Walter Scott's Marmion, apostrophizing woman. When pain and anguish wring the brow, a ministering angel thou. Jesus was surely in need of those angels. Apart from hunger, thirst and weariness, he must have been emotionally drained. 
and after the prolonged contact with evil personified, spiritually exhausted, though not conquered. And what seems to emerge here is that not only has Satan been conquered, but the desert has been transformed, the wasteland has been saved, the wasteland rejoices and blooms. But it's not time yet to pick the Easter lilies, for the Gospel reminds us that Lent is only just beginning. Lent, the time of fulfilment, the acceptable time, time to go into the desert. And as a contemporary tailpiece, here are some lines by Seamus Heaney. March has come in like a lion for our chain-smoking poet, but not only March. The corrugated iron growled like thunder when March came in. Then as the year turned warmer and invalids and bulbs came up from under, I hibernated on behind the dormer, staring through shaken branches at the hill, dissociated like an ailing farmer chloroformed against things seasonal in a reek of cigarette smoke and dropped ash. Lent came in next, also like a lion, sinewy and wild for discipline, a fasted will marauding through the body, and I taunted it with scents of nicotine as I lit one off another and felt rash and stirred in the deep litter of the study. <laughs> <laughs> 